It's an honor for me to be with you this morning to, first off, represent Jesus Christ, whom we all love and serve, but also to represent uh, an organization called Encompass World Partners. Now, I'm not here today to give an advertisement for them, but just to remind you that we are you and you are us. In other words, your church belongs to a bigger movement in the U.S. and an even larger one globally called the Karis Fellowship or globally the Karis Alliance. And Encompass, since its beginning, has been your cross-cultural missions arm. In fact, your church owns a piece of us and gets to vote every year on who my bosses are as the executive director. So please give them a good report for me uh, after today. But we do consider it an honor to represent you. You, you uh, support a number of people who also work with us around the world. And I'm honored to be back with you again. It's been several years. I want to talk this morning, though, about something that's not quite so happy. Not my wife. Let me go on to the next slide. <laughs> but that is my wife. I want to talk about something called cancel culture. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. It's kind of a big thing these days, isn't it? That idea that if I don't like your message and I don't like the noise I think you're making, I can just turn you off. And if enough people do that, you've been canceled. Cancel culture has been called online bullying. And it's a big problem in our world today. And I guess it's one thing when you're turning off the knob for someone else, but it's quite a different thing when you're the person who is being shut down. And wow, this is a bit of a problem in our society today. But I'd like to point out to you that this is not new in the history of the world. But try to imagine with me as I get into this, uh, just uh, what would it be like if some of the largest corporations in the history of the world, I see you waving your arms and why are you doing that? Oh. No, I want them to stay here today. <laughs> well, I'm somebody was supposed to dismiss the children, and it's not me, but you all ought to go. But if you really want to hear a good sermon, <laughs> no, all the kids need to go, and I'm sure it's going to be a great program where you're going. I just saw this waving and jumping, and I thought, it's a different kind of church here. Were you doing that while I was singing up here, painting? Were you doing that in the background? Anyway, back to something a bit more sobering, and that is the idea of cancel culture. Imagine today if, uh, if a really large corporation decided that they were going to turn their power against you. These are obvious, right? But who's this? It would be a pretty amazing, pretty distressing thing if you discovered that in Apple boardrooms, they decided they're going to try to shut you down. Let's add another one to that and see uh, how this feels. We're talking now, uh, what, what's this? Now, these uh, two companies don't get along a whole lot, but imagine if they did decide to come together to try to shut you down, would you not feel rather powerless? Let's add a few more here. You ever seen this one? Let's see if we can go on to that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What would Christmas be without this one? But, but yeah, what if you couldn't buy Christmas presents because you were being canceled uh, through Amazon? Let me see if I can add some more here. Uh, you've seen this one before? Yeah, this one dates you a little bit. How about this one? Anybody know what the F stands for here for Facebook? And you talk about Johnson & Johnson, ExxonMobil. Well, imagine the impact if a corporation that would encompass as much influence as all of these groups put together today, if they decided they wanted to cancel you. Does that seem impossible? It actually happened about 200 years ago. And I'm going to tell you a bit of that story this morning. But not just a big corporation that wants to cancel a certain message, but they feel like they've got to get the government involved in it as well. And this actually took place in, in Great Britain some years ago. 
uh, and I might need a little bit of help here, dear, if you want to go back, because we're having a little trouble with this today. But yeah, and so they sent this letter to the British Parliament. So we're talking about the most powerful corporation, because you look at that and say, well, who is the British East India Company? They literally controlled half of the world's trade at this moment in history. So I'm not exaggerating when I say they're really big. They were the government for the subcontinent of India. They raised armies. This company raised armies to fight the Chinese, and they actually won the battle. They won the war. This is really powerful. And they are so upset that they send a letter to the British government. And what are they so upset about? And why do they need the government's help? They said, the sending of missionaries into our eastern possessions is the, what's it say? The maddest, most extravagant, most costly, most indefensible project which has ever been suggested by a moonstruck fanatic. Does that sound like cancel culture to you? Such a scheme is pernicious, imprudent, useless, harmful, dangerous, profitless, fantastic. It strikes against all reason and sound policy. It brings the safety and uh, peace and safety of our possessions into peril. What are they talking about here? These guys are focused against this one man and the message he had. His name was uh, William Carey. And uh, if you can just help me out with this, I think you're getting set up the air. There we go. Now it's going to go smoothly. But William Carey was a part-time shoe repairman, a cobbler, as well as a part-time pastor in England. And as he'd been reading his Bible, he came across the passage, which we're going to look at in a minute here, but is pretty familiar with us today, which had been lost in all of the theological struggles and debates and sort of explained away so that Christians like us in churches thought this no longer applies to us today. And so he wrote a little pamphlet, and here's this interesting title. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. How do you like that? And in fact, if you had the whole title, it goes on for another 50 words or so. I love these old books because if you read the title, you kind of have the whole book. You don't have to read the whole book here. But take a moment and examine this with me. What is he saying? An inquiry is saying, could we all have a conversation? I want to talk about something. And what do I want us to talk about as a church here? About the obligations. Do we actually, as believers, have a responsibility to do something? Is God asking us to do something here? And what is that obligation? To use means, that's kind of their old way of saying, do we have a responsibility to actually organize prayer, to collect money, to train people, to send them out, to see other people in other parts of the world come to know Jesus? Now, this is rather different than our world today. You, you're talking, it's, I love it when a pastor's crying about missions. Would you come up here and cry for us a bit more? I mean, I love it. Uh, because it's a little different situation today, but this was a pretty sterile topic in the churches that love Jesus. And I'm convinced that, uh, I'm sure it's the case, that, that most of the men who were on the board of directors of the British East India Company were good, faithful Christians who went to church every Sunday and yet this guy introduces something that seems so radical to them. In fact, he ran into opposition from his own church. And so a couple years earlier, he's uh, asking the pastors as they gathered in that region, uh, what do you guys think about this topic before he pr produced his book? And you see what their response was. One of the most respectful of them said, young man, what? Sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he'll do it without your help or mine. There was some bad theology in our churches but also some enormous indifference so that a passage of Scripture that we know pretty well today had been lost from view. And that passage, of course, is Matthew chapter 28. 
And so I'm going to ask you to read that together. Are they allowed to read here? Yeah, you did that earlier. Okay. Would you read that together with me? What does it say? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I imagine a number of us here could even recite that from memory, probably not new to most of us, but at this point in history, that was a passage of enormous controversy. Now, I don't think it's so much that it's been forgotten today. I just think we uh, need maybe a a reset moment when we go back and look at it closely and say, what does it really mean? Because for us today, perhaps it's become so familiar that we no longer feel the impact. And there's four words that we're going to center our talk around today, and they all, in the Greek language, have to do with the word all. They're all translated that way. So Jesus wants to get something across with stressing all, okay? All authority, all nations, all that I've commanded you in all the days. I'm going to be with you always. Let's begin by looking at that first all, all authority. Now this passage comes at the end of the book of Matthew. These are the last verses in that book. You guys probably know this is the first book of the New Testament. But it's helpful to us to just remember what Matthew is trying to teach us through his book. You don't need to turn there. I'll just review things that probably are familiar to you. But if you go to Matthew chapter 1, it starts out by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew begins his explanation of who Jesus is by saying he's got roots, okay? And so what was promised to Abraham, that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed, well, Jesus is actually tied back to him. Through David, the king, who, who God said, I will one day establish your, your progeny, your offspring, on my throne forever and ever. But of course, we know that this Jesus, this man born here, is not just a human being, but he's also God become flesh. And so Matthew's going to start his explanation that ends with this verse. He's going, to say, uh, he's going to give us some foundation as to who Jesus is. As you continue reading the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew is going to give us uh, all of these stories that show the uniqueness of Jesus, that he loves on people as he shares good news with them, as he brings healing, as he brings restoration. He's even going to explain a bit of the kind of world that Jesus wishes to introduce us to. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have him telling us a whole different set of rules by which we ought to be relating to one another. Yet interestingly enough, when men and women got a really close look at Jesus, they didn't like what they saw. As attractive as I trust that he is to us today, they had a close look and they ultimately reject him. You guys know the story, right? What do they do? They crucify him. He is buried. They think the story is over. And then on the third day, you're going to celebrate this in a couple weeks, God raises him from the dead in power. So now, reminding ourselves of that storyline, we come to this passage, and it means a little bit more to us, because we put it in context. In fact, I chose to skip over the first verse, but uh, follow along as I read it this time. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Which Jesus? The Jesus that I just revealed to you in summary form. And what do they do when they saw him? How do they respond? How do they respond? They worshiped him. Because they see the real Jesus, the risen Jesus, 
And men and women, when you have an experience with the real Jesus of the Bible, your knees get weak. And you fall down. And you worship him. And that's the response that they had. And it's in that context that Jesus is able to say, this worship of me, it is right. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. If Jesus is a name, if he's a friendly person of the history, you know, of history that, you're, that you've learned about, if it's kind of nice to learn about his teachings and, and try to emulate him, because there's a lot of people in the world who say Jesus is somebody to emulate, but if you have not yet had the weak knees experience, Matthew's saying you haven't met the real Jesus of the Bible yet. And at that moment when Jesus really becomes real to us, there is only one response, and that is to fall down and worship him. And that's where rediscovering the truth of Matthew 28 really begins. Affirming who Jesus is. Having that weak need experience where we must fall down and say, you are truly God. And in that context, he says this is correct because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, let's move on now to the next all that pops out here because all authority uh, in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so how does William Carey respond to this? Well, this is in 1792. So by 1793, he figures out if Jesus says all authority is, is mine and now you're to go and share this with other people, I better be willing to go. So he leaves everything, takes his family, and takes a ship over uh, to India and becomes a missionary. He spends the rest of his life figuring out the implications of the rest of this great commission. Now, for us in America, it took a couple years for this, this rediscovery to really reach our shores, but by 1812 or so, now we are actually sending out our first missionaries from North America. And this is happening in New England. I had the opportunity to visit this church on the 200th anniversary of this some years ago. It was a pretty cool experience. But now we're beginning to recognize this is for us as well. Because our churches had also, in America, had also sort of let this passage become a back you know, burner type of issue for us. And so we're beginning to send out missionaries. But what about our family of churches? We've mentioned this a bit earlier, but we, uh, you belong to a family of churches in North America. We call ourselves today the Karis Fellowship and a, a bigger family around the world now, uh, but uh, we call ourselves the Karis Alliance. But what was happening with us? Well, most of our churches at this point in history, in the early 1800s, were located in very rural areas. We're following the westward migrations, and uh, we are growing as a movement, but primarily because we're having a lot of babies, okay, because we've got farms. We need people to help us work them. Uh, but what's so kind of sad about this moment in our history as a movement of churches is how much of our energy is turned inward where we are debating things. Because the world is changing then like it's changing now. We feel like it's never changed this fast before. Well, there's numerous points in human history where things felt like they were changing just as fast. And so they're dealing with how does our church relate to our society and what do we permit our kids to do and not to do because... And, and, all, and like Satan is using that to be a distraction for people who at one point said all authority was given to Jesus and now they're just spending their time trying to debate, debate things inwardly. It's not a happy moment for our movement. But along comes this man and we're going to call him the William Carey of our movement. His name is uh, Jacob Castle. I want to introduce you to him today. 
He was born uh, outside of Philadelphia, so not far from here. And uh, at age 24, like most young men, he's looking for a wife. He gets married. All sounds pretty good till now. He immigrates. He moves to the city of Philadelphia. And, uh, and he actually becomes part owner and then later full owner in this business called the Terracotta Works. Now today, this, this stuff all looks really antique to us, but he was on the cutting edge of what people thought was really cool back then. And so this is a Christian businessman. I don't know what God's called you to do. Maybe you're called to business. Maybe you're called into the professions. I just want to tell you, this man had a massive impact on the history of our movement and our missions in the world. And he's a businessman who's, who's trying to wake us up here. So he uh, uh, joins this church. This is the first brethren church of Philadelphia. So that's what we used to call ourselves years ago. So one of our family. And, and he gets excited. And he's, he's raising his family. He's trying to run his business. He's a busy guy. But he wants to serve God. And he wants to serve God in the community. So his church says, then we want you to be our librarian. Now, I think librarians are cool. And I met my wife in a library one time. She was a librarian. And the rest is history, right? So that's all pretty nice. But but, you know, librarian, does that sound significant? It actually was at this moment because in Philadelphia there was no public library. That didn't happen until years later. That was free. And so churches like, like theirs, like perhaps yours, would try to find ways to bless people in the community. And so they would offer books because people had no access. And so this really was an outreach ministry. He did well at it. And soon they said, would you head up our Sunday school? And you might be thinking Sunday school is something that happens in the church building, and typically today it does. Praise God for Sunday school and teachers and where we can send our kids to learn about him. But that's not what it was at this point in history. A Sunday school was a church's, a Sunday school. It was a church's outreach ministry. And so children at this point in American history that are working, working during the week, have no opportunity to learn, and so churches like ours there would start a school where they would learn reading and writing and arithmetic and learn about Jesus, so he's heading this up, and he's starting to say, we ought to plant some churches. This is a, this is a businessman doing this, waking up his own church, and then soon saying other churches ought to be joining us in this, but he comes across Matthew 28 and says, wait a minute, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. When's our church going to start doing this? And so he became what people called a missions agitator. Would you like that title? I, I kind of like it, actually, so you can use it for me. But he decided God placed him on this earth to make people uncomfortable. So I already like this. It's sort of like William Carey in that way. And during a five-year period, we have all this record, from 1895 to 1900, he's writing articles in our national periodical that goes out to all our churches. He's going to places, he's preaching, and, he's, and by the way, he, he, at that point he becomes credentialed as a pastor, so he sort of has a little bit more platform. Still running his business, helping as a pastor in his church, helping to start a church in another part of Pennsylvania, but he's becoming this agitator. And I get this idea that everybody knew what he was about. He was, like a, he was like a piano with one note on it, a trumpet with just one note. I mean, if you're around him, what's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about the Great Commission. Uh, I, I get this feeling that if you were a group of people and you saw, you're talking and having a good time and saw Jacob coming, you all would find an excuse to go to the bathroom or do something because you know what he's going to talk about. So this is Jacob Castle trying to wake people up about the Great Commission. So he arrives at our national conference in Indiana in, uh, in 1900. And uh, they give him an opportunity to share one of the sermons. And this is just a little excerpt from it. Follow along as I read. He says, 
We have reached a period of history in which God's dear children believe the prophecies and feel the force of the commission. What commission do you think he's referring to? The Great Commission. And by the way, a whole lot of people weren't yet feeling it with him. <laughs> but he's a man who's talking through the eyes of faith. This, but he had just been at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, a national or international meeting where people from hundreds of mission agencies had gathered in New York. And he was all juiced with this thing. We can really reach the world in our generation. And then he goes to our sleepy national country. There are 2,000 people there. So this is a big event. And they all enjoyed the singing and had their little sermons and stuff. But he says, it's time for us to believe what we should have been believing all along. With the world open and the means of, of communication and transportation developed. Now you tell me, what was communication and transportation like in 1900? I think we're a little bit farther along, right? But what did he see are new opportunities because we have technology to do things like never before. With men and money in abundance, well, we didn't have any men, we didn't have any money, but he's, he's faithful. He, he's, he's casting a vision here. And the promise of the presence of Jesus to whom all power is committed in heaven and earth, surely the outlook is altogether hopeful. Opportunities are almost limitless. And it was a great sermon and everybody applauded. And then the conference just went back to sleep. Well, over the next couple of days, he just struggled with this. And finally, during a business meeting, he got up and said, guys, or whatever they said in 1900, y'all, I don't know what he said. But uh, it, don't you think it's time for us to do something? Because Jesus said all authority is given to me in heaven. Are we going to listen to him or not? And interestingly enough, 2,000 people decided to just stay where they were seated. And 52 got up and left because they invited him to go out. If you, if you mission enthusiasts, they called us, if you want to do this, you can go, there's room for you under the trees. But we got important business to deal with here. And so these 52 plus him went out there and they started what today is called Encompass World Partners. And our movement has never been the same since then. Because someone said, if all authority has been given to Jesus, I better listen to the rest of what he's saying. In fact, we'll just take you through a quick tour of the world here. 1900, we're only in North America. By 1920, we had started some uh, in other parts of the world, Canada and uh, Argentina. We're over in Persia. We started in the central region of Africa. We've got to go quickly here. But 1940, yeah, you see some give and take because not everything we attempted to do succeeded. But by 1960, you start to see some more expansion. By 1980, it's going to go a little farther. By 2000, you're going to see some more colored in. By 2020, again, a little bit of the give and take here, the ebb and flow. But if you looked at us today, we've been able to touch this number of countries as uh, we look at the, the next slide here. And it talks just about you know, where our movement has sent people. But I want to point out to you that the map's a bit deceiving because the map is designed the way we think about our world today, most of us in terms of countries, but that's actually not what Jesus said. Jesus talked about something else. He said, all authority is given to me, now I want you to make disciples of all what? Of all nations. And in the Greek language, that word is ethne or ethnos. It appears a lot of times in the New Testament. Ethnic comes from that. This idea, Jesus is saying all the people groups of the world. You can't contain them and, and mark them off by countries. There's 193 countries in the world today. There's a whole lot more people groups. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, I want you to take the good news and penetrate every group that is different than you are. That's my definition of people group. There's a lot more definitions I can give you, but the simplest one is we are us and they are them. You know they're different than you. We're comfortable with ourselves, but they have different language, different customs, different politics, different culture, I mean, all those sort of things. They live in a different part of the world. 
And so the task of the Great Commission of Missions is I'm willing to cross barriers. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to go to them. I'm willing to work to help the gospel make sense to them, to people who are different than I am. So their churches are going to look different. Their expressions of Christianity are going to look different. And this is all a good thing. And so we look at our world today in terms of people groups. We calculate, it's kind of hard to have an exact number, but there's probably over 17,000 of them. That means when Jesus said, if you really believe all authority has been given to me, then I want you to go make disciples among all ethnic groups, then it should matter to us to find out which ethnic groups have churches and celebrate Jesus and which ones don't. And so this next chart continues to be really, really sobering because we calculate there's at least 7,000 ethnic groups in our world today where some of them may have church, but it's so small and so minority that they really have no voice in society. So missionaries come in to help strengthen them so that they can reach their people. And there's still hundreds of groups that have no testimony for Jesus Christ. We're a whole lot farther than we were in the year 30, 33, when Jesus gave the Great Commission. But wow, we still have an enormous amount of work to do. So the first step in a rediscovery of the power of these words from Jesus is to recognize he has all authority. We bend our knees. But then he says, okay, uh, now let's rise up and let's go out. And we go out as we pray. We go out as we give. We go out as we send, as we release our young people, as we release others to go out. Somehow all of us are supposed to be involved in this. So worshiping him and then being willing to release and to be willing to go out. And we praise God for men like Jacob Castle, who brought back a discovery, or helped us to discover as a movement something we had also forgotten, because we believed it in our first years, and that is that this Great Commission applies to us. I'm happy to report to you today that, uh, that uh, those who followed in this challenge from 1900 have succeeded in many ways beyond our wildest dreams. You belong to a global movement. Did you realize that 90% of our churches today are outside of North America? Well over 90%. That as men and women gathered, and there are many believers in the church of Jesus, but I'm talking about our family, as men and women gathered in churches like yours that have the same DNA of yours around the world, 95% of us did not worship this morning in English. Yeah, we've made some progress, haven't we? But my goodness, there's still 7,000 people groups where there's almost no name of Jesus named. And thankfully, there's a lot of other good Christians uh, working with us in this. It's not just our task. We praise God for that. But what's our responsibility in this? So he says all things. Teach them, uh, uh, go, go to all nations. But now I want to pass to that third all. Teach them all that I have commanded you. And so it begins with recognizing who Jesus is and then being willing to go out and, and, and make the nations, all the nations, our priority. But then he comes along and says, teach them everything that I've commanded you. How long does that take? How many of you think you're obeying everything Jesus has commanded? I'd like to, I'd like to read your book because I need some help on that stuff yet. And I think this is so important because it talks to us about the willingness to stick at it long enough. You see, it's not just enough to go out there and sow some gospel seed. We've got to be willing to plant ourselves long enough in the world so that people actually come to obey all that Jesus commanded, just like we're trying, just like we're on that quest. And this is a much harder task than what we might think initially. 
it's not just taking our best literature and our best way of doing things in America and translating it and saying, if you do it our way. No, it's something much deeper than that. I want to illustrate that by experience we had. My wife and I were missionaries in Argentina, raised our kids there. We were there for 12 years before God called us back for me to take this role. And we brought high school kids back with us who really were more Argentine than North American. And uh, here it is January as we're starting. Mean, first off, we left summer in Argentina in January and came to winter in northern Indiana. So right there, we're starting off on rocky, fo uh, rocky footing. But we're sending our kids to school and you know the trauma that that is when you're in high school and junior high, no matter where you're from. But here they are coming from somewhere else. And, and so we send our seventh uh, grader, Mark, to school, and we're worried about how his first day is going to go. And fortunately, there were kids in the, in the youth group that sort of welcomed him into the, the junior high and, and helped him to adapt. But we really kind of wanted to know what happened at lunchtime. Because isn't it horrible to eat lunch alone, especially when you're in school? Did any of, no, I don't have to ask you if you had that experience. It's terrible. And so he said, yeah, Mom and Dad, uh, the kids gathered around, and they helped me uh, to, to eat my lunch so I wasn't alone. I said, well, how did that go? He said, it went terrible. He said, do you realize, Dad, I understood every word they said. I had no idea what they were talking about. Now, wait a minute. He looks American because he's, you know, of American parents. He speaks the language perfectly, but he doesn't have that set of experiences. And so they're talking about all the stuff they saw on TV and their newest games and all that stuff. And he's like, I have, let's talk about Argentina for a while. You see, and so he had to enculturate. He had to learn those kind of things. Well, just a little example about the challenge, because that's kind of reverse culture shock as we send people out. And that's why in missions, we've got to train people in, in what does it mean to explain Jesus in ways that make sense to people that aren't from our cultural background. The good news is we have a Bible, which isn't American, by the way. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. So every time that your pastor gets up and explains it, he's actually bridging between this culture and your culture. Did you realize he's doing that? We call that contextualizing it. He's helping us understand how this applies in our world. That's what missionaries have to do. So we've got to teach them three cultures. The culture of the Bible, the culture they grew up in, so they can know what's cultural and what's biblical, and then the culture where they're going to. And how long does that process take? Fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit. We have tools that we've developed over the years that help make this task a bit easier. But it's a big task. And it isn't done quickly. So let me just illustrate some of the opportunities we have to do this around the world. Here in the upper left-hand corner, I'm meeting with a group of young Cambodians who grew up in a Buddhist background for whom Jesus is like the strangest word you could say because their complete uh, worldview is Buddhist, which is cyclical. It couldn't be more different than our worldview. And they grow up, and how do you share the gospel? You can't just say, Jesus loves you, and would you please accept him, because it makes no sense. In the beginning, God. There is no beginning. There's not one God. There's 330 million. I mean, how, where do you go with this? And so what we've done is we've created this incubator there in Cambodia where they come as university students, and we give them really low-cost uh, housing, and they live with Christians for four years. And by the time they've heard the gospel, learned about the Bible, and seen Christians for four years, most of them are becoming pretty passionate followers of Jesus. You can't do that on a short-term trip. You've got to be willing to be there for a while, right? Uh, down in the right-hand corner there, these are Brazilians. that They have a different way of approaching this because we've been there 60, 70 years. The gospel's been in Brazil for a long time, much longer than that. So here are pastors trying to figure out how do we raise a new generation up that knows what Jesus is and understands uh, what it means to obey all things. 
uh, let's uh, show you a little bit about Africa. On the left-hand corner there, on the bottom, I'm meeting with 95 African church planters who are at the absolute ends of the earth in terms of least reached. They're just out there, and they're just starting with, with the ABCs of Christianity. But, you know, the next Sunday I'm preaching in this church that this is one of three services in the city of Bangui of one of our churches, and there's 75 of our churches in that city. Everybody knows who we are. And so that's a different approach. But all, how did they get to that point? Because somebody stuck with it long enough. You see, teaching them to obey all things. I think we got another picture here. Yeah, here we are in Argentina. They're, 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 in these Latin American countries, they're focusing primarily, especially in this part of, the, of, of, of Latin America, they're focusing on a decentralized leadership training. And what does it look like when guys and, and women, men and women are full-time jobs and they can't just go to school somewhere? How do we teach them? as leaders. Below that is a seminary building where men and, and, and women come in Africa and we're just, we just got them for three years. And then they go out and they spend the rest of their lives teaching the all that I commanded you to the churches uh, that they're going to be pastors in. But all that just to get us back to this idea of what does it mean really to understand and to be motivated by this great commission, which is not forgotten among us, but maybe is so common, we sort of, it loses its, its urgency to us today. And so uh, let's go back now to, uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 28. All authority, so go out until all the nations have received the gospel, but don't just sprinkle something out there and go back home, stay there long enough. That's why in our mission agency, which is really yours because you own us, Two-thirds of our people are involved in least-reached stuff, going out there where no, the gospel isn't. And the other third, what do they do? They're trying to help the churches that we planted also do the same thing. So now it's not missions just from the west to the rest. Today's the area. Today's the moment of missions from anywhere to everywhere. And we're just seeing this starting to happen, and it is truly an amazing thing. But the good news is that while this is incredibly hard, there's still another all here in this passage. Jesus says to those who care about this, I will be with you in a special way. I will be with you all the days to the end of the age. And we really need that fourth all because this is not an easy assignment. Our first successful field was Argentina. They faced enormous opposition. They would go selling Bibles at a discount rate and the national church would send people, the non-evangelical you know, church, would send people to buy the Bibles back, you know, so we couldn't do this. One day, our, our missionaries showed up at this rented hall and found the dead body of one of their early converts. Basically, they were saying, get out of here, and this is going to happen to the rest of you if you stick around. They faced some enormous opposition. In Africa, which was the second big field we developed, we buried one out of every five people that we sent there initially. Now, in today's world, most places aren't finding dead bodies, but I've met some scarred ex-Muslims who have become Jesus followers whose families have rejected them. There's still opposition. There always will be opposition to the authority of Jesus and what he wants to see happen. And so we've got 2,000 years of mission history that we can look back on. The story of battles lost and won with lots of injuries and some casualties along the way. But in this greatest commission, Jesus tells us, this is the way I've chosen to build my kingdom and I'm inviting you to be a part of it. These four alls combine to make the greatest commission that's ever been given to us. But I want to go back for just a moment to a passage, to three words I skipped over. I don't know if you noticed this. 
When these 11 disciples were in front of Jesus and bowed down to worship him, some of them doubted. Does that bother you? They doubted. How do we explain that? Well, that word doubted uh, only appears one other time in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. And it appears uh, when, uh, when Jesus is walking on the water in the storm and the disciples are very frightened and they think he's a ghost and he calms them down and says it's me and you know this story probably from Sunday school but he Peter says ooh, ooh pick me can I walk across the water with you and Jesus says sure come you know the story he steps out on the water and begins to walk and then what happens then he doubted same word what does this mean uh, then he is distracted he wavers and cries out and says i'm sinking and jesus lifts him up and and restores him and puts him back in the boat uh it's a pretty interesting word if you think about it because it's kind of similar to what's happening with us today jesus is saying i really do have all authority and i'm telling you you can walk on the water here you can do the most significant thing and actually in the history of the world it's even greater than walking on water but are you going to really believe or are you going to doubt are you going to waver? And as the wind blew and as the storm uh, was raging around them and as the waves perhaps got a bit bigger and, uh, and, and, and uh, Peter gets distracted, he takes his eyes off Jesus. You take your eyes off Jesus for a moment, you're going to start sinking, right? He says, but some doubted. But I believe he wants more from us today. So he's brought us to a crossroads. In fact, all of these alls bring us to a crossword. The first one that we talked about is, have you really seen the Jesus of the Bible? Because if you do, your knees are going to get weak. If you haven't had that experience yet, I know the pastors really, really want to talk to you. Because when you know who he is, you're going to be different from that moment on. But as you are different, then, what is he asking of you? And he's saying, make my program, your priority, and whatever. Remember Jacob Castle, he's a businessman, and he's turning his wisdom and his wealth and his influence loose on getting other people to go out. Thanks to him, 95% of us in our movement today, we all, they would all take their spiritual ancestry back to this guy, whose name has pretty much been forgotten by us. I'm, I'm glad to resurrect it for you this morning. There's all different ways to be engaged in the nations. If Jesus really is who he says he is and who we say we believe that he is, then we do come to another crossroads. We say, is, are the nations and his heart for the nations going to matter to us or are we going to just take the other pathway? Will we waver? Will we doubt? But, you know, some people get started, get excited, say, oh, I heard this great mission sermon. I'm going to go home. Hope it's great today. But, you know, go home and you, just, and you just start something and you just don't stick with it long enough. We're not finished until all the nations are doing all the things that Jesus commanded us. Some of us just need to persevere. I know I made a pledge to pray, but I've stopped. Let's pray. I know I made a pledge to give. I've stopped. Let's, time, let's start giving again. I know I prayed one day that God would use my children any way he wanted, and then I've taken them back and said, no, but make sure they do it next door. And he's saying, don't waver. And by the way, I will be with you all the days to the end of the age. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity this morning to sort of take a refresher course on the basics, something that the church had explained away 200 years ago. We're not going to explain it away today, but we sure can ignore it. Or we can feel that it's so familiar that it no longer serves as the rudder of our lives steering us in the right direction. 
thanks that this church cares about the Great Commission, but may this missions conference this weekend be an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment, our commitment to these four alls of the Greatest Commission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.